And also the one of the other functions of alcohol is it's, it's ramping up these kind of feel good hormones, so serotonin, dopamine, endorphins, things that make us feel better about ourselves. They make us feel better about other people. They make us less likely to even want to deceive or cheat in the first place. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast, is my chance to bring you along with me, whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on or my thoughts. I'm so glad you're here, and so with that aside, let's get into today's episode. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to uh, 2023. You made it. Here we are. Your uh, your sixth favorite podcast is back and maybe even better than ever. Also, maybe not. You get to be the judge. That's the good news. So my guest today, uh, and hey, all these podcasts are fun. I was so, so glad this one got to happen right here. My guest is Edward Slingerland. He is a professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia. He has appointments in psychology and Asian studies. So if you're not new to this podcast, um, or if you bothered to read the name and you are new, you're like, okay, cocktail boy, what's going on here with uh, this interview? So in the course of Edward's work, uh, and I'll let him do the work in terms of how he got here, he ended up writing a book uh, called Drunk, How We Sipped and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. This book somehow made its way onto my radar, and that got me uh, interested to pick it up. And I mean, I wasn't a half dozen pages in, I'm laughing, but I'm also noticing that it is, of course, uh, him being an academic, it's incredibly well researched. So this book is really kind of an exploration on alcohol. It's been in our it's been around since the dawn of civilization. Uh, it has a great social cost. We talk about these things. Drunk driving, you know, you go out drinking one no, So drunk driving is one. Uh, maybe you go out drinking one night. Wake up the next day. You don't feel so well. You go to work. You're probably not operating at 100%. You know, bad things, unfortunately, happen around this stuff. And yet, uh, societally and evolutionarily, it has not been eliminated from our diet. So this is an exploration of despite these social costs, what are the social benefits? Uh, what are the ways in which this tool can help us feel more connected to one another, that it, it sort of serves as this marker for celebration? And this idea that it, helping us feel more connected to one another is useful because it's not always as this thinking feeling primate. These things aren't always easy. Uh, another thing that he delves into is the last part of the human brain to develop is the prefrontal cortex. And this helps you uh, arguably be a quasi at least responsible and orderly adult. And while this is great, there are moments in which we need to be a little bit more creative and a drink or two or he also spends a little bit of time in the book talking about, hey, when alcohol is not present in another culture, they often have another intoxicating uh, substance. Hashish, kava, very powerful tobacco. But when we have small amounts of these things, they help us actually relax and become more creative. Um, finally, and I really liked that he talked about this too at some point in the book, that at some point, how can we get comfortable acknowledging that sometimes it's just a-okay for something to just feel good, to be purely hedonistic and pleasure driving as opposed to there having to be a purpose? Um, on the other sides of things, things that I will leave this interview with, um, he spends time talking about what's what has changed for alcohol over the millennia that it's been in our in our societies are what he says are isolation and distillation. He's going to get into a little bit. This idea that increasingly, as opposed to where we used to have much more communal living, we're all now at home, and that for so much of history, what was available 
were low-proof beers and wines. And now, of course, as we all know, you can go to the liquor store and walk out with bonded whiskey and take that home and drink it on your own. And so things we need to be aware of. And so in that, he's going to talk a little bit about the idea of Northern versus uh, Southern European uh, drinking cultures and kind of the difference of why Italy can arguably have some of the highest per capita consumption rates of alcohol and yet some of the lowest rates of alcoholism. Uh, The book is absolutely fantastic. I cannot recommend it enough. I really, I laughed and I learned a whole lot. Um, We will have links to all of his stuff. Uh, uh, You can find him at Edward Slingerland. That's S-L-I-N-G-E-R-L-A-N-D.com. But again, links to all of that will be in the show notes. Uh, It's a great book, really. Uh, So I hope you enjoy this interview with him. Edward, thanks so much for taking some time today to chat. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So where I'd be interested to start a little bit is, uh, so I I wanted to read your bio because I have a question. So uh, Dr. Slingerland is an expert on early Chinese thought, comparative religion and cognitive sciences of religion. Uh, big data approaches to cultural analysis, cognitive linguistics, and has authored pieces on things like the analects, analects of Confucius. So how did you arrive at coming to write a book like this? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a question a lot of my colleagues have as well. <laughs> so it's it's actually grows fairly organically out of my previous work. So the one of my... Uh, the topic of my dissertation was this concept of effortless action uh, in Chinese Wu Wei. So this is a state of spontaneity. So you lose a sense of yourself as an agent, you lose a sense of the passage of time, everything works out, you're effective, you're charismatic, <clears throat> people want to follow you, people trust you. So the early Chinese thinkers that I looked at all have this as an ideal. They want you to get into this state. But they all face this problem which I summed up in the title of my first trade book, Trying Not to Try. How do you try to be spontaneous? So if you know that there are advantages to being relaxed and kind of in the zone, how do you try consciously to get there? And I point out in the book that it's actually a, it's a paradox to try to do that. So when you're, if I tell you to relax, you're doing, you know, you're too, too uptight, relax. The part of your brain that I'm activating is actually the part that you need to turn down. And so it's directly paradoxical. And so the early Chinese thinkers came up with a variety of ways to kind of trick your trick you around that. So they tell you to sit and meditate this way. They give you a set of ritual practices to do. But what occurred to me at one point, um, later, really when I was presenting on trying not to try to popular audiences, is that um, there might be other techniques that are more direct, like chemical intoxicants. So I started to think of alcohol as, hey, maybe this is a cultural technology that cultures have used when they recognize that they need the benefits of spontaneity. They know that it's paradoxical to try to consciously try to do that. But if you could sip a pleasant tasting substance and it can go in and do that job for you, Maybe that's a pretty useful thing to have. So, so this kind of my interest in spontaneity really kind of led to my interest in chemical intoxication. Got it. Yeah. When I was thinking about some of your work, I was I was wondering how you might have arrived here. It wasn't so out of left field, but it was uh, it was certainly uh, a, a curious thing to ponder a little bit. Yeah, my colleagues. I mean. I write a history of intoxication. They're they're pretty baffled, but but it's not as out of, out of left field as it seems. So if I was going to attempt to summarize what I learned, because at some point I'd love for you to expound a little bit on it, but it's like you know this idea that we know that alcohol mm-hmm. is uh, it's toxic to the body, in addiction to being into- an intoxicant, like it's toxic for us, yeah. and yet there there is so there's this interesting question of why. Has it not been evolutionarily eliminated from our diet? You talk about things like 
Asian flushing syndrome as, you know, an example, but that genetically what we know is things like this perhaps should spread. So are there benefits to alcohol despite the big costs that we are overlooking? So to your point about trying to relax, you talk about the idea of building community, of, of finding creativity, that there are some of these things that um, are seemingly less tangible that really are the benefit. So is that, would you kind of, is that a fair summary or what else would you add to that regarding the book? The, the central question I'm trying to answer is why do we like to get drunk? And the standard story for that, the kind of, you know, if you ask people this to say, well, because it feels good. <laughs> and that's, that's true at a proximate level. So, you know, in evolutionary theory, you talk about proximate explanations and ultimate explanations. So proximately, we drink because it makes us feel good. The deeper question, though, is why, why does evolution allow it to make us feel good? And the importance of things like the Asian flushing syndrome is that it doesn't have to be the case. So people say, well, it makes us feel good. It doesn't have to. And actually, if you have this set of mutations that causes it, it interferes with your ability to metabolize ethanol, you drinking alcohol doesn't make you feel good. It actually makes you feel really, really bad. You flush, you get heart palpitations, you feel nauseous. And so um, the question is, why did that? And that gene complex arose probably seven to 10,000 years ago. So if, if, as the standard scientific story goes, our taste for alcohol is an evolutionary mistake, it's a hijacking of reward networks, we now have a solution. 10,000 years ago, we came up with a solution to it. That should have just ended the whole nonsense with intoxicants. That should have spread all over the globe, and we should not be drinking alcohol today. And yet we are. And so the question is why? And as you say, part of the answer is there has to be some, some set of functional benefits that's offsetting the costs. Because alcohol is very costly. It's, it's a physically addictive. It's physiologically dangerous. causes liver damage. Um, it increases your cancer risk. And so there have to be benefits. And the, crucially, the benefits can't just be um, it makes us feel good. Because evolution doesn't care whether we feel good or not. The, the currency of evolution is success in passing on genes to the next generation. So there's got to be some benefits that, that are tangible in the currency that genetic and cultural evolution care about. I, uh, I, I can't remember the exact quote right now, but as I was reading the book, I thought of, uh, there's a, I think Sylvia Plath has a line. It's like, there's nothing like, puking together that will turn two people into old friends. And I, yeah. and, I, and yeah. you certainly talk about this in the book that at times, whether it was your example of Navy SEALs having some friction in a, in their unit and a night of drinking, perhaps helping uh, release some of those tensions, or even just some of the friends that I have uh, after a bender or just going out together you wake up and maybe you don't feel good, but you feel like you've been through something with that person. And mm -hmm. so I think sometimes maybe we don't realize to your point that the, that the actual, there's, there's a pharmacological effect that's helping that, that happen right there. Yeah. That's one of the two main functions that I look at. So, um, one of them is this bonding and chemical disarmament basically. So we are, um, we, as a species, we have this tricky situation where we have to learn to cooperate with with individuals who are not our genetic relatives um, and cooperate on a large scale. And we often face these cooperation dilemmas that we could get into the weeds of kind of economic you know, game theory and things like that. But the upshot is there are, there are cooperation dilemmas where the best payoff for you as an individual is when you can actually put aside your immediate selfish self-interest, do something generous for the group. And actually in the end, you'll all do better. That's the, we face situations like this all the time, group uh, based collective action problems. Um, the, the tricky thing about these problems is that the reason they're a problem is because if I trust you and I'm generous and I cooperate, I'm making myself vulnerable to being taken advantage of. 
the, the best strategy in these situations is actually to pretend to be cooperative, but not be. <laughs> so you can capture all the benefits and not pay any of the costs. And so humans are constantly on the lookout for, we want to trust others, but we we're aware that we're vulnerable to what economists would call defection. The way alcohol helps with that is it disarms us. So if I'm going to try to convince you that I'm trustworthy, that I'm a good friend, or that I'll be a good you know, comrade in the SEALs with you, I'll have your back, I have to have my prefrontal cortex in prime working condition. So the, the PFC is the center of executive function, cognitive control. It's our center of our ability to delay, delay gratification, stay focused on task, keep abstract ideas in our head lying or or trying to deceive someone is a very pfc heavy operation because i've got to keep in my mind simultaneously what i'm telling you is true and what is actually true and i've got to suppress emotional reactions that correspond to what i know is true but not to what i'm telling you is true i have to maybe fake expressions that fit what i'm telling you is a situation it's really is you're running your pfc at high speed when you're just trying to deceive someone so if i can give you if i can sit down with you and give you a substance that is going to actually go in and turn that pfc down it's, it's i compare it to shaking hands when you meet someone you're saying i don't have a weapon in my right hand i'm disarmed if we sit down and do a couple shots together before we start negotiating a contract or you know going into battle together i basically i'm taking my pfc down and putting it on the table and saying i'm cognitively disarmed you can trust me so it uh, alcohol has this function of uh making it both harder for us to deceive others and also uh, strangely easier to detect deception in others we're actually better at detecting lies when we're a little bit drunk um, because we think we know what the cues of lying are, but we don't. <laughs> and so when we're trying consciously to do it, we're not very good. We're a chance. But if we relax and kind of take in more data, we're actually better than chance. Um, and also the, one of the other functions of alcohol is it's, it's ramping up these kind of feel-good hormones, so serotonin, dopamine, endorphins, things that make us feel better about ourselves. They make us feel better about other people. They make us less likely to even want to deceive or cheat in the first place. So I review some evidence that if you you shoot a little serotonin up people's noses, they 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 don't cheat in economic games as much. So so alcohol is having all these effects at the same time, and the overall function of that is to help us overcome cooperation dilemmas, to overcome the possibility of mutual suspicion, and to be able to cooperate in ways we need to be able to cooperate if we're going to succeed as a species. Yeah, I think as you kind of start, like, you know, the, the burden of being this socially evolved ape is we have to figure out these ways to, like, what was it you talk about? Like, if you have a plane full of, like, apes and, like, they take off, like, it's going to be, it's going to be <clears throat> yeah. mass, mass chaos versus, you know, hey, even though we might get frustrated at fellow passengers, we all have managed to arrive at the other location. And so this cooperation, general understanding are things that we've kind of massaged out. And I really liked that. I think it's easy when we think about ancient times to, for me to take somebody like the people of Socrates and Plato's era and make them otherworldly uh, and kind of like, you know, very, and obviously they're, they're famous for their stoicism, but this idea that, uh, for some reason, when we talk about these periods, when we talk about the smoking of a peace pipe, when we talk about a lot of ritual, you talk about like a lot of these people were using lots of intoxicants to uh, have fun, but also perhaps to lower that PFC so they could develop greater trust. And I thought that's just good because we talk about Johnny Appleseed to your point, but we don't talk about the fact that that was likely making brandy as opposed to he was just yeah. like, planting apples for the people yeah yeah so it's it's significant that when you, you know there are some cultures that don't have alcohol and those cultures when they sit down to have a treaty meeting or deal with something difficult they substitute some other chemical intoxicant so um you know the the peace pipe so-called peace pipe is was uh, tobacco in north america they didn't have alcohol um, but they were using tobacco very strong tobacco laced with hallucinogens for the exactly the same function 
potentially hostile individuals need to sit down and come to an agreement, we get this intoxicant out. In the areas of the Pacific where they don't have alcohol, they use kava, this, this tuber that can be turned into an intoxicating beverage. So to me, that's a really powerful bit of evidence that when you take alcohol out of the equation, some other chemical intoxicant that has very similar functions takes its place. So that suggests that it's serving this really crucial function that we need it to serve. And so if we don't have it, we have to put something else in that slot. So that to me is a really strong argument. So, you know, the argument I'm making for these functions comes from a lot of different areas, you know, game theory, cooperation theory, um, but also just historical evidence. When you see this, this drug being used in the same situations across all these cultures throughout history, that's a powerful signal that something's probably going on there functionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, and obviously there could be some cultures with a moratorium, but you talk about like with Mormonism, perhaps it's really more like it's really a differentiation point than mm-hmm. alcohol is bad. Or you say, Hey, in many Muslim cultures that have banned it, there is often still in many of them, like rampant usage of hashish or other things too. So yeah, yeah that in many cases, it, it really is kind of just this pervasive thing right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in Mormonism, um, it's significant that they're banning not just intoxicants, but also stimulants. So caffeine. So if, if they were really targeting the negative effects of chemical intoxication, they would just stick with banning intoxicants, but they don't. They go on to ban you know, uh, stimulants they, and ban a bunch of other things that seem functionally irrelevant. So again, this is all suggests that what's going on here is a kind of religious group signaling. So, um, and, you know, that's one of the things I study uh, academically is the cognitive science evolution of religion. And one of the things that successful religions do to create group cohesion, keep people together, is make their adherents do weird, weird, unpleasant stuff <laughs> that shows that they really believe and, and allows them to signal to others that they really believe. And so I think that's what's going on with the, the Mormon ban on intoxicants. It's a, it's a um, commitment device. It's a kind of signaling device. And it's also a very powerful group marker. It sets these people apart from the cultures around them. And, and a lot of scholars have argued a very similar thing was happening with the original ban on intoxicants in Islam is that Islam was um, you know, spreading into the Mediterranean among these wine drinking cultures and needed to do something to distinguish itself. And so banning uh, intoxicants was one, one way to do that. I really like, because I think it's important, as we've already talked a little bit about, that you take one whole chapter to talk about like, hey, here's the many millions of people that are affected by alcoholism, die early, um, you know, what those rates look like. So I think it was very useful that we talked about that. But I also liked, I think it was towards the end of that chapter, even the book, where you said that there is still this thing where there's almost like this demonization of uh there's something wrong about just wanting to enjoy it for enjoying its sake so what what are 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 these just deep embedded religious principles that like it's all about productivity and living longer and like actual like euphoria like so because you also say at the very end like we have this moralistic bent as strong as Victorian England. And so I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about why we need to think about lightening up a little bit. So partly it's just this weird, um, you know, neo-Victorian, neo-puritanical discomfort with talking about intoxication. So in the cognitive science of religion and, and ritual, one of the areas I work in academically, people are very comfortable talking about synchrony, you know, people tapping a table in time, people marching together. We're comfortable talking about, you know, kind of really horrific um, self-harm practices of people sticking skewers through their cheeks and pulling heavy wagons and fire walking and um, singing, you know, people singing together is something we study and talk about. Um, 
But what's odd, we're oddly silent about is the people who are doing these things are often really high when they're doing it, you know, they're drunk or they're high on some other substance. And we feel really uncomfortable talking about that. There's actually very recently an article by Robin, Robin Dunbar, who's a, a prominent UK anthropologist, talking about different types of devices, cultural technologies we use to overcome cooperation dilemmas and you know, cooperate as a species. And he talks about singing and feasting and marching and, and no, nowhere in that list is getting intoxicated together. So there's this weird discomfort we have talking about intoxicants that I think has to do with this kind of, um, I don't know, puritanical or uh, Victorian discomfort with pleasure that you see in, in Northern European cultures. But your point about that argument I make at the end of the book is, is essentially turning that lens back on me. So for most of the book, I'm making, if you want to think about it, I'm making an Apollonian argument for Dionysus, right? I'm making a functional argument for why we like to be non-functional sometimes. We, we like to impair ourselves with intoxicants sometimes. And that argument has to be made because as I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, that's the currency that evolution works in. This, this taste for alcohol would not survive in our genetic or cultural repertoires unless it had these functional benefits. And that's what the bulk of the book is dedicated to. But at the end, I say, you know, and it's worth thinking about the fact that even though evolution doesn't care if we feel good or not, we do, <laughs> right? We're not the same as our gene. Our, int our interests as individuals and our genes' interests often diverge. Um, so we care about feeling good and we care about being happy. And so, you know, on top of all the functional benefits of alcohol, it does make us feel good. It, um, you know, it brings pleasure and we should be okay, including that as an argument, you know, on top of the kind of more functional, hard nosed evolutionary arguments that one wants to make. And, and I do feel like we, as a culture, tend to give pleasure short shrift. We don't, we don't give it as much room in our lives as we need to. So, so yeah, that's a, that's a, at the end, I basically take myself to task for being purely Apollonian in my argument and saying, look, uh, feeling good is, is itself a kind of good, and we need to, to recognize that. Yeah, I mean, while it obviously gets – because I think to your point of even citing some of those research, you know, I'll, I'll out myself in the book, you say that, hey, like many people who have been on like uh, a more extreme – psychedelic trip will rate it as like this transformational thing and mm -hmm. i would be one of those people and like you know can i really even rate it for you but yeah it's like it's it's overwhelming and yet um i i have to pay respect to it because i i, I look at that moment as a change a moment of change for me and and why you know that said, I have a good friend who just came back from a seven-day silent retreat, and he said the high and, – and Michael Pollan talks about this. I think you mentioned it in the book too. You know, He says the high he got in like the middle of the retreat, which was – you know, it's not easy. That's a lot of days of yeah. sitting quietly, but the high was just incredible, he said. Um, and so – you know, there are very few things that these intoxicants can, can't do that like meditation, holotropic breathing can't do, yeah. but it's this accelerated path to it. And also mm -hmm. if it happens to feel good, why are we demonizing that too? Yeah. So as I point out in the book, there's lots of uh, non-chemical substance ways you can get into a similar state. And at the end of the day, they're still chemical, right? You're still it's physical things changing physical things. But you can get into a state of uh, what's sometimes called hypofrontality. So where you, you know, you've turned down the PFC and often you've ramped up these kind of feel-good chemicals in your body through holotropic breathing, through sitting in meditation as your friend did for a full week silent meditation. You can do it through extreme pain. So these rituals, my colleague Demetrius Cycladis studies these extreme rituals where people um, you know, flagellate themselves and stick spikes through their cheeks and walk on coals. Um, that'll get you into this, these kind of states as well. Um, 
sleep deprivation and fasting can get you into these states. So there are other ways to do it. And again, it's significant that some religious groups, there are religious groups who ban chemical intoxicants and they often substitute these kind of practices in their place because they can get you to the, the same, the same destination. But at the end of the day, um, you know what a hassle <laughs> it's really yep. it's really hard to you know find a week where you can go be in silent retreat or stay up all night and and so it's um you know my argument is just there are other paths and people use them but the chemical intoxicant path is quite easy and quite fast and that's that's a reason that it's always remained an option for us because it's it is um it's reliable it's fast and it's easy it um yeah it, it's it it certainly makes good sense and and I want to get to when you talk about the the modern dilemmas but before that one of the passages I liked was uh children are the R and D department of the human species uh the the blue sky guys the brainstormers adults are production and marketing they make discoveries and we implement them and you know innovation is obviously this big uh uh topic of conversation right now. You talked about in the book, this idea of going to the pub after a symposium and after a couple of drinks, maybe you're more likely to uh, share that idea. That's a wild brain or wild hair. Uh, so, so mm-hmm. will you talk a little bit about what you learned in terms of creativity uh, in that forum as well? Yeah, so that that quotation you just read is actually from Alison Gopnik. Okay. So she's a developmental psychologist at UC Berkeley, and I'm taking issue with it a little bit. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so her argument is that so what she studies, one of the things she studies is creativity, and particularly um, creativity in young children, and how that the ability to be creative changes over time developmentally. And what she demonstrates in a series of very clever experiments is that um, young kids, like four or five-year-olds, are very good at solving uh, lateral thinking tasks. So, so they're they're very good at solving problems that require insight, that require you to connect things that would not normally get connected, or that re- basically require you to think out of the box. You have to think something unusual. Um, kids are little kids are really good at this and our performance on these tasks declines in a linear fashion as we age until we as adults were terrible at these things mm-hmm. what i what i do in the book is is overlay a, a graph of the development of the pfc which pretty much matches it exactly so as our prefrontal cortex develops we get worse at thinking outside of the box we become better at focusing on tasks getting to work on time, um, you know, delaying gratification, doing all these things that that grownups need to do that a successful human needs to do. And so, um, you know, we evolution, I argue evolution's facing this kind of design trade off. It wants us to have a fully functioning PFC because it wants us to be grown up adults who can Mm -hmm. focus. Um, And yet, we there's an advantage to that more childlike state of mind um not just creativity but also we're open to absorbing information this is why young kids can learn languages and absorb all the cultural information very easily and so <clears throat> evolution's response to this uh trade-off is essentially to slow walk the development of the pfc mm-hmm. it's the last part of the brain to develop so you know it's really the last part of a human being to develop which is interesting. So you're a 20, 20 year old is fully mature physically, except for this part. <laughs> this is still not quite fully formed yet until your mid twenties. Um, so that's how it deals with this design trade-off, but it's still, it would be advantageous if even as adults, we could somehow recapture that state of mind. And, and this is where I, I disagree with Alison Gopnik a bit in the sense that um, little kids aren't really the R&D department because most of the things that little kids come up with are stupid. Sure. 
<laughs> you know, they're not useful. They like, um, you know, because kids just don't understand what's important in terms of, in grown up terms, in terms of what's useful. So, um, you know, little four year olds uh, have created very few patent applications <laughs> because they just, they're not interested in things that grown ups are interested in. So, really, what you want is to recapture that kind of mental flexibility that a four-year-old has, but as a grown-up. So with all the knowledge and abilities that you have, and you know, crucially, the ability to then implement it once you come out of that state. And so you need something that would suppress the PFC for a short period of time, allow you to get back to that mental flexibility, and then pop out of it. And basically, if you gave this problem to a cultural engineer, they would come up with alcohol <laughs> or something very similar, right? This the substance that will take down the PFC temporarily, um, also make you feel good. And so you're confident and you're, as you said, you're willing to share ideas that may seem dumb to the sober mind. Um, so so this is the, the second crucial function of alcohol that I talk about in the book is this its role in ramping up temporarily individual creativity. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, you see across the world throughout history, you see this um, association between alcohol and creative types. So artists, poets, um, people who need to come up with new ideas. And it's not a myth. It's, it's actually there it, by, by taking down the function of the PFC, we regain a kind of mental flexibility, mm -hmm. ability to see connections we wouldn't otherwise see. Simultaneously, because it's disinhibiting us, it's making us feel more social and talk talkative. It It's an engine for group innovation because you put a bunch of people in a room together mm -hmm. and you make them all individually more creative. And then you allow them to communicate with each other in a much less inhibited way with the filters gone um that's a, a petri dish for new ideas so this is group innovation comes out of one of the engines of it is getting people together in a room and and down regulating their pfc a bit and so you know i argue i give examples of how professional organizations use this um i give some anecdotal examples from from my own professional life um, but this has been a crucial function of alcohol as well. This, this uh, being an engine of both individual creativity and group innovation. Yeah. And uh, so I guess yeah, it's funny. I remembered you certainly making this point about um, turning off the PFC to be more creative and, you know, uh, must've forgotten that Allison's point was not, <laughs> you're right. Cause you're, cause you're right regarding children, not filing patents. Um, but yeah, you also talked about it too, in terms of having, despite having written this book during COVID and you and I being able to have this conversation right now being zoom, uh, there is certainly a level of camaraderie and intimacy, uh, that is felt by being in the same room. There's a reason why people fly across the country to ink contracts, even if they're just going to turn right around, because there is that celebratory moment of being together. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, I just, I, I, I loved that in terms of feeling out how do we get out of our own way when we're trying to be a little more creative. Yeah. And, you know, so it explains really both of these major functions of alcohol explain why people still like now that the pandemic is receding or at least we mm -hmm. we care about it less um we you know people are super eager to get back to in-person events so i've just been to a bunch of in-person uh conferences for in, in some cases seeing colleagues who i haven't seen in person for three years mm -hmm. and it's a completely qualitatively different type of interaction if you yeah. hang out over dinner and some wine with people, the course of your conversation and the variety of topics that you ping around in, in between the, the types of ideas you have are just qualitatively different than, than if you were having a zoom conference or trying to interact, you know, virtually. And there are a lot of reasons for that, right? It's, um, you're not the alcohol is important, but the in-person part is crucial too. Yeah, I think uh, to the point, like right now, there's even like the dynamic on Zoom of like, oh, I don't want to cut you off because of how the feed works. So yeah, it's just, it's not, 
there's a whole other, um, yeah, there's a whole series of cues that are certainly missing in that point. Yeah. Yeah. So it actually, my, my partner's sitting right over there. She's a psychologist who studies among other things, conversation and the cues that we use that I know when, how I know that you're done talking and it's okay for me to talk now. Um, or that, or that cue to me that you're getting a little bored with what I'm talking about and we should move on to something else. Um, the, the timing of these is very, very precise in normal conversation and, no matter how good your internet connection is, if you know there's a time lag at all, it's going to screw with that. And that's why people are talking over each other all the time in, in Zoom conversations. People have trouble knowing, it's like entering traffic, right? People have trouble knowing when it's okay to jump into the conversation. It's just, it's awkward. And then that awkwardness creates further kind of distance um between people so so yeah there's no zoom is not a substitute for for in-person interactions plus you plus you're missing all these different channels of information you get when you're in person i don't know what you're talking about our interview our internet connection is just fine right now so <laughs> yeah, yeah, i'm talking to i'm talking to a still picture of you with a mask on yeah, so it's, yeah it's terrible yeah. <laughs> yeah. um so jumping forward to thinking about like how we manage this, but also where we are in modern times, you talk about like the advent of two things as we move into. So like, I want to talk about Northern versus Southern drinking cultures, as you kind of outlined, but also to your point, you talk about the advent of isolation and distillation. This idea that, that really vodka, whiskey, et cetera, pick your poison. These are more novel and are much more intoxicating, especially then things that would have been available hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, much lower alcohol content. So one, we have access to all the high power spirits we want, and there's no social regulation to that these days you talk about as these problems. So I don't know if you'd like to talk about that through the lens of Northern or Southern or what that brings up for you, but I, I mm -hmm. that's where my mind is right now. Yeah, so at the end of the book, I talk about how alcohol in the modern world has become more dangerous than it's been historically. And the two main dangers I sum up as distillation and isolation. So distillation first, so for most, we've been producing and consuming alcohol for longer than we've been doing anything as a species in an organized fashion. So thousands of years before we had agriculture, but for almost all of that evolutionary history, so at least, you know, almost certainly 20,000 years ago, and certainly we have direct evidence 13,000 years ago. For almost all of that time, we've been drinking relatively weak beers, so coming in like 2 3% ABV, and then fruit wines could get stronger, but still typically not more than like 6 7 8% ABV. Mm -hmm. And that's because... Uh, alcoholic beverages come with a built-in safety feature, which is the limits of natural fermentation. So yeast are turning starches, sugars into ethanol. They're relatively resistant to ethanol, which is a poison. They're producing it as a biological weapon to kill off the bacteria that they're competing with. Um, so they're tougher than the bacteria, but not infinitely tough. So at some point they shut themselves down because of this ethanol. And that's when you're done. That's as, much, that's as strong as the alcoholic beverage is going to get. At a certain point, first of all, we've been pushing yeast to get tougher and tougher. So we've been making stronger and stronger beers and wines, but it's incremental. And there's still, you can only get the strongest we've been able to get through natural fermentation is like 16, 17% ABV. Through distillation, we circumvent that safety feature. So we figure out how to pull the alcohol off as it's being produced and concentrated. And through distillation, you can get like a 90-something percent ABV vodka. Mm -hmm. This is a relatively recent... We've known about the concept of distillation for a very long time, but uh, technologically, it's tricky to pull off. You have to be able to... You need metallurgy, glass blowing. You need to be able to keep liquids at a very specific temperature for a long period of time. It's actually hard to do technically. And we weren't able to do it on a large scale in Europe until the 16, 1700s. So, so the story I'm telling starts 
10 million years ago with our primate ancestors. So this is basically a blink of an eye evolutionarily. Suddenly we have access to this. It's still just ethanol. It's the same drug that's in a beer, but it's in such a more concentrated form that I think we really should view it as a completely different drug. It's just so much more powerful. It overwhelms our physiology. And so most of the benefits that I talk about individual and social for alcohol happen at moderate levels of inebriation. So about 0.08 blood alcohol content. So maybe two beers in. If you're drinking a two to 3% ABV session ale, you could drink that all day and never get beyond 0.08. It's just physically the amount of liquid you would have to consume to get more alcohol than that is, is physically, physiologically difficult. Um, if you're doing shots of tequila or shots of vodka, you can blow right past 0.08 and into very dangerous levels of inebriation very quickly in 20 minutes. And so it just, alcohol in that concentration overwhelms the machinery we have to detoxify ethanol and, and, pushes us into very dangerous levels of inebriation very quickly. So, so one danger is this really super powerful new form of alcohol that we never had before. Um, the second is the second safety feature that's been disabled is that cultures that use alcohol always do it socially. So historically it's been rare to unheard of for you to have private access to alcohol. If, if you want to drink alcohol, you're doing it in a social situation. And these social situations are typically surrounded by all sorts of ritual regulations. Um, so I talk about some very formal historical ones. So toasting cultures, the Greek symposium where you know, the wine was passed around at certain intervals and made stronger, weaker with water. Um, but you see them even in what seem like completely informal situations. Like if you go to the pub with friends and you, um, if we go to the pub together and we get some beers and you, you down yours very quickly, you have to wait until I'm done mm -hmm. because we're going to order another round, right? So ordering in rounds is a way to regulate people's drinking. Even, um, you know, things like the cocktail server, ideally, if you've been drinking too quickly, we'll just not make eye contact with you. <laughs> so we have ways, you know, to socially just stop people from drinking when we think they're, they're drinking too much. And so cultures that use alcohol have recognized that it's a two-sided thing. It can be dangerous as well as helpful. And so they create, there's various social technologies for helping us to drink safely. What's new, again, relatively new is the ability to drive your SUV through a drive through liquor store mm -hmm. and load up on enough vodka to kill a small size village mm -hmm. and just take that home and have it in your home accessible to whenever you want it. Um, so the ability to drink at home alone is relatively new historically and is really dangerous. <laughs> it's, um, and how dangerous it is became really clear um, during this interesting natural experiment that you'd never get IRB approval to do, but um, just happened, which is the, the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So what happens if you take a bunch of people around the world and you tell them you have to stay home, you're not allowed to leave your home, but you can have as much alcohol as you want delivered to your house. Um, the result is really unhealthy drinking practices. Mm -hmm. Um, so during the, there's, there's emerging evidence that during the pandemic, um, people's drinking became really dangerous because they didn't have the normal social cues to help them control it. And so, so alcohol is more dangerous for, because we've just completely or partially disabled these two safety features that it's come with historically. And then if you want to put this in the context of the Northern versus Southern drinking culture issue, um, Cult, you know, culture matters. And um, so Northern, Southern, we're talking about Europe here. So anthropologists talk about Northern European versus Southern European drinking cultures. Um, there are two different cultural approaches to how you would use alcohol. So in Southern cultures, so think of Italy or Spain, South France for the most part, um, you're drinking primarily beer and wine. Mm -hmm. So not very much distilled liquor. You have maybe a little tiny bit of distilled liquor as a digestivo after dinner. Um, it's always in the context of a meal. 
it's always around the meal table. So you're always doing it with other people and food. Kids, kids are involved, old people are involved, everyone's there. Um, kids get introduced to alcohol at an early age in watered down form. So kids will get a little glass of wine with water in it. Mm -hmm. um, they get the message that this is part of life. It's just something you do that helps enhance a meal and you know enhance sociality between people. It's nothing special or weird. Um, drunkenness so getting drinking to the point that you're visibly drunk mm -hmm. is considered shameful you it's not okay it's actually something um people don't want to do um all of this together creates a culture that allows you to consume alcohol in a relatively safe way and so if you look it's probably the case that human populations around the world somewhere around 15 percent of the population is prone to alcoholism right. has troubled genetically drinking in a safe fashion and yet actual alcoholism rates vary um, from country to country when you look at italy they drink an enormous amount of alcohol i think the highest per capita in europe and yet they have very low alcoholism rates and it's probably because of again the protective function of this culture as opposed to northern cultures and so northern cultures you're drinking much more, sometimes exclusively distilled spirits. You're doing shots. It's typically groups of men together outside of the context of a meal. They're just drinking to get drunk. Um, it's forbidden to kids. It's this kind of dangerous taboo substance right. that kids aren't allowed to have, which makes, of course, kids want it even more. Um, and it's you're drinking to get drunk. The, the purpose is to get visibly drunk, and kind of the drunker you are, the better group member you are right. um in this type of culture it's, it's hard to consume alcohol safely mm -hmm. um and in cultures like this you see very high levels of alcoholism even though the per capita consumption may not be that high so um this is and you know when you look at north america we've inherited this northern drinking culture right. um and then combined it with this weird neo-puritanism in a way that's created this uniquely um, toxic cocktail culturally of attitudes toward alcohol. So yeah, so the take home is that, you know, culture matters and, and the type of drinking culture you have can really change the calculus in terms of, you know, is alcohol too dangerous? Are the benefits that we get from it not worth the cost? I um I, I I loved the analogy between the two. And so is that where it, you know, obviously if you're having the right cocktail, you know, that's not maybe a martini, that's a, you know, three to one or five to one ratio, but maybe like a a lower proof Paloma, you know, I mean, we're obviously thinning out that tequila mm -hmm. at that point, but is is the a question like because I, I would imagine it's maybe more the cumulative amount of alcohol. But so if I'm someone that likes a hard spirit and I have a little bit, but not a lot, is it the octane of that? That's really like the poison. This could be moving outside your, your, your field of study, but for people having distilled spirits is the case really more to be careful on regulating the amount, or is it just hitting the body totally different period? It's hitting the body <clears throat> slightly differently okay. because of the speed. Um, but you can drink spirits safely. It's just you have to drink them in small quantities and spaced out. <laughs> so it's not that you can't do it. It's just harder. Um, yep. And the, the, um, the danger is it's just the, your ability to really overwhelm your system quickly is is just completely different with spirits. Yeah. But you know, I, I love spirits. I love a Negroni. I love cocktails. I'm a fan of scotch. Um, but I've definitely come to view them since writing the book with more caution, with a little bit more respect for how strong this substance is um, and how quickly it's going to hit my brain and you know how much I have to space it out with other stuff if I'm going to drink safely. Sure. And and interestingly, I mean, I I never was a beer drinker. I never drank beer. I'm not a I, you know I'm a wine drinker, and I like cocktails and and scotch. Um, 
but I've started drinking beer occasionally now. (laughs) And it's just because one take home of the book is actually beer is in terms of safety and in terms of capturing the benefits of alcohol with, with, while mitigating the downsides, beer is the safest way. It's the safest package for delivering ethanol to the brain Hmm. because it's kind of, it's a built in slow, so it's like driving a car that's got a built-in max speed on it. Mm-hmm. You know, it just the car won't let you go above a certain speed. Um, beer is like that because of how weak it is alcoholically. It's it's safer in that regard. And so cocktails are like if you're drinking cocktails, it's like driving a car, a sports car that could go really really <laughs> fast. And so you have to then, as an individual exert some control over yourself to not press down on the accelerator. Got it. Yeah. Uh, I know we only have a, a, a couple minutes left just to, so like we obviously talked about the benefits of like Southern drinking culture in terms of it being more communal, being more low proof product. So as we're taking away this new level of observation is kind of one of the big takeaways, Hey, like lower proof items and preferably find ways that you should be drinking amongst friends and family more? Is that kind of like if if we're beginning to try to engineer our lives a little bit more to be Mm -hmm. healthier, is that how we should be thinking about it? It could be too too much oversimplification here. No, absolutely. So, you know, once you understand what the functions of alcohol are, you have a better idea of when you use it, you know, when is appropriate or useful to use it. When you understand the dangers, you understand, it's good to to kind of look under the hood at cultural engineering. So if you look at the Southern drinking culture and try to say, well, what are the underlying functions it's having? Oh, it's making you drink in a social context where you're being regulated. Oh, it's focusing on lower alcohol content beverages that are safer to drink. Um, it's it's oh, it's making you drink those things in the context of a meal, which is also help, helping to moderate the intoxication. Um, when you understand the functions, you can just recreate those functions in different ways. So yeah, I think the take-home messages of the book are you know um, be be wary of. Uh, distilled liquors. <laughs> so, you know, cocktails are great, but you got to be really careful about them. Yeah. Um, drink in public, drink with other people. Um, it's going to inevitably help you kind of regulate your alcohol consumption in a way that if you're drinking alone at home um, is challenging. Um, you know, think about non-alcoholic options yeah. getting mixed in every once in a while. Take advantage of the placebo effect. So, um, you know, one thing, one new tool we have, which we haven't had historically, is non-alcoholic beverages that taste good. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's actually now non-alcoholic beers that, that taste pretty good um, and non-alcoholic cocktails that um, are pleasant to drink. And if you're doing that occasionally, while also occasionally drinking alcoholic versions of them, you could take advantage of the placebo effect. So there are, you know, there are these kind of sober bars where you can, where everything is non-alcoholic, yeah. but it's still a bar. You go in, it's dimly lit, there's music, you get served a cocktail and a cocktail glass. You can get some of the same buzz um, from drinking a non-alcoholic beverage because of all the, the social cues that you would get from drinking a, an alcoholic cocktail. And so that's a way to also moderate your consumption is, is mix in some placebo versions of, of drinking and and we have the technology to do that effectively, whereas we didn't in the past. I've definitely tasted some very delicious NA beers, and even some like had like uh, you know that some of the NA bitters, like making a, a Negroni, is actually pretty fun. So uh, so yeah, there's okay. yeah there's actually some pretty cool stuff out there. Uh, very quickly for people that are loving the work, and I mean I just. The book is hilarious and also so well-written, but for people that want to keep up with your work, where should they uh, check you out at? My website's just my name, edwardslerlandoneword.com. So that's got all my podcast interviews, latest articles, um, everything you'd want to know about my research is on there. Awesome. Uh, Edward, thanks so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. 
Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. The show notes for today's episode are available at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com slash newsletter. Or give us a follow on Instagram at Decoding Cocktails. If you think this podcast is great stuff, we'd love it if you'd subscribe or, of course, share an episode with a friend. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon, and happy cocktailing.